0: We absolutely know that someone soon is going to challenge us, maybe even with something that conflicts strongly with how we see ourselves. When they do, how to respond in a better way is the focus of this episode. This is Coaching for Leaders, Episode 615.
1: Produced by Innovate Learning, Maximizing Human Potential.
0: Greetings to you from Orange County, California. This is Coaching for Leaders, and I'm your host, Dave stahoviak Leaders aren't born, they're made. And this weekly show helps you discover leadership wisdom through insightful conversations. One of the conversations many of us try to inspire is to get feedback, is to be challenged about the work we're doing so we can learn and we can grow. And we intellectually know the importance of that, and yet when those conversations actually happen, we don't always respond in the best and most healthy ways. Today, an invitation for us on how to respond better when we're challenged, especially when those challenges come at what feels like an aim to our identity. And I'm so glad to welcome someone who's going to help us to really look at this in a healthy way so we can all do better at responding to challenges. Dolly Chug is a social psychologist and management professor at the New York University Stern School of Business, where she teaches MBA courses in leadership and management. She was one of six professors chosen from thousands at NYU to receive the Distinguished Teaching Award in 2020, and one of five to receive the Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Faculty Award in 2013. Dolly's research focuses on bounded ethicality, which she describes as the psychology of good people. Her work has been published in the leading psychology, economics, and management journals and cited by many books and authors. She has been named an SPSP Fellow, received the Academy of Management Best Paper Award, and has been named one of the top 100 most influential people in business ethics by Ethosphere magazine. Her first book, The Person You Mean to Be, has received rave praise from Adam Grant, Angela Duckworth, Liz Wiseman, Billie Jean King, and many others. It has been covered on the Today Show, the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, and many other media outlets. She is the author of A More Just Future: Psychological Tools for Reckoning with Our Past and Driving Social Change. Dolly, what a pleasure to have you on the show! It is so Dave. That was such a nice introduction, but it was even
1: better when you sang to me before we hit record. That was the best. Hello, Can you do that for all your guests, uh,
0: Dolly. <laughs> No, I've actually never sung for anybody. So here we go. It's a new adventure Uh, for both of us.
1: (laughs) Dave, already we're winning.
0: (laughs) Already a win. I'm so glad to meet you. What a fun and insightful book this was to read. And I I was struck by the quote in one of the headings of one of the chapters from Alfred Wainwright. And the quote is, there's no such thing as bad weather, only unsuitable clothing. (laughs) And I got to thinking about that because, of course, the weather changes, right? We all know we're going to get challenges from others. We want to be and we should be challenged. But it's interesting how often we're unprepared when someone says something about us that affects how we think about ourselves, our identity, isn't it?
1: Oh, my gosh. Yeah, I know I am. It, it it's It's no matter how much you say, as you mentioned in the introduction, that we want the feedback and we want the pushback. In the moment, all the sort of psychology behind our identities just kicks in. We go into all all sorts of protective measures to protect our identities, the identities we care most about. And, and dressing for the weather means like, how can we be ready for that? How can we bring the umbrella or the sunblock so that when it happens, we can cope with it, even if we're surprised by it?
0: There's an element of nostalgia that you reference in your work. And I think that we all gravitate towards nostalgia in a way. It's a part of our society. And Sometimes it doesn't serve us well. And there's a quote from one of the guides in the book that says, history is kind of about what you need to know, but nostalgia is what you want to hear.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: How does that get in the way?
1: Yeah, I mean, nostalgia is awesome, right? We, we It's seductive. A, research on nostalgia show, tells us that this sentimental form of history and of storytelling actually gives us a greater sense of belonging. It gives us a greater sense of interpersonal competence, like that competence that you need to feel to sort of walk up to a stranger and start talking to them or present in front of a group, that kind of interpersonal competence. Nostalgia actually increases that feeling. So it's not that surprising, right? That it's a gazillion dollar industry. You think about nostalgia and music in fashion In even in travel and tourism, we see it all the time that we want to revisit the stories of our own past, our childhood, or the good old days, our family's nostalgia, maybe our company's nostalgia, our community's nostalgia, our country's nostalgia. These are all memories that we like to revisit that make us feel good. The challenge is sometimes that nostalgia, which is fun to embrace, isn't always the full story of what happened. And it gets in the way of us connecting with other people because what's nostalgia for us may be clouding what was a more difficult reality for them.
0: Ah, uh, is there a way to notice that in the moment when we do get in these conversations about challenge? That helps us to to get past some of that nostalgia that we tend to want to lean into ourselves?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think so, first of all, I think the dressing for the weather piece of this is to know that a lot of the narratives we hold on to that become part of our our norms, our traditions, our holidays, our Did I ever tell you the story about, you know, the stories that we like to tell over and over? We should just assume. That a a good chunk of that is nostalgia that there's elements of that that are emotionally very satisfying and there's nothing wrong with that but that we shouldn't mistake that for it being the full truth or all perspectives on what happened in that whatever we're recalling so I would say that's the first place that's that's the dressing for the weather piece is to just to to know to not be surprised when someone says that I don't And I'm going to just give an example from my own. In the United States, the 4th of July, grew up celebrating it. I still celebrate it. I love the 4th of July, red, white, and blue all the way. Love my country. And many of your listeners, for whatever country they live in, may have a similar affiliation. I was, I don't know why, but I was sort of shocked when I came to learn that Juneteenth, which took place almost 100 years after 1776, which is... When the Fourth of July sort of commemorates the birthday of the United States, to sort of realize that Juneteenth commemorated the end of slavery, and that for that interim period of almost a hundred years, everything we were celebrating on on what we called Independence Day actually wasn't independence at all for a significant part of the part of the population. I was like I was so shocked when I realized this and. The very near past, like a couple of years ago, even though it's sort of obvious when you just think about 1700s versus 1800s. So, the dressing for the weather is you know what? I'm going to just sit with it. I'm going to, I can have my 4th of July nostalgia. And at the same time, I can realize that the 4th of July was more about who we want to be and what we aspire to be than who we actually were at that moment.
0: I appreciate you sharing that. And I was thinking about your example with Juneteenth and how what's nostalgia for some of us is very difficult and painful for others, and that both of those can be true at the same time. And there's elements of feelings that come up for all of us when we get challenged or when we get confronted with something that maybe was nostalgia for us or a situation that we reflect on if not even our national conversations, but a situation in the workplace or a past event that happened that maybe we have really good feelings about, but someone else challenges that. And two of the things that tend to come up for a lot of us is guilt and shame. And Mm. you do draw a distinction between them in the book. And I think that might be helpful to illuminate for folks. When you think about those two, what's different between them?
1: Yeah, so scholars of emotion are very precise when they talk about different emotions, more precise than I might be if I were just talking with my friends about, oh, I feel so guilty, or I ate that cupcake, or whatever, hypothetically. And so when I when I look at their research on guilt and shame, they make a real distinction between the two. The distinction they make is guilt is about feeling bad about a thing I did, like an action or an inaction. It's not about how I feel about myself as a human. I'm not my identities that I care about, like my identity as an American or as a mother or whatever identities I care deeply about are not being challenged. I just feel bad about that thing I did. Shame is when I feel bad about myself as a whole, where my whole identity is being being challenged. and. What they find is that when we feel guilty about something, our impulse is to fix the thing. So guilt leads Mm. to action. When we feel shame about something, our impulse is to pull back. We don't feel a sense of agency to fix it. So we actually do less, not more, to fix the thing. There is an exception to that, which is when you feel shame, you feel bad about yourself as a whole, but you can see the path to fix the thing then shame can actually be mobilizing similar to guilt. And so this distinction I think is useful while we, we don't have to be as precise as academics when we talk about our emotions, it is helpful to sort of, I think, let's say we're in the workplace and someone says, you just used a word that's got some his history to it that's really icky, brutal history and I don't think you should be using that word. And our instinct is to like, Defend ourselves. I mean, that's how I kind of feel like. Well, I, that's not what I meant. Or what do you mean? I'm a big proponent of our DEI initiatives. Or how could you possibly think I'm not a good person? I'm a racist. Whatever. Yeah. That that's where my mind wants to go until I kind of like gather myself and put myself in what Angela Duckworth calls a growth mindset. Or oh, I'm sorry, Carol Dweck, excuse me, calls a growth mindset of being what I call goodish instead of a good person. When I put myself in that goodish mindset where I'm trying to learn from what they're saying in that moment, then guilt is what I want to draw on in that moment. So it's not that I, it's like, well, I feel bad. I never want to feel bad. It's like, actually feeling bad isn't the worst thing. You just want to feel the right kind of bad. Shame is the wrong kind of bad in this situation. It's not going to help you fix the thing. If you did something that actually did some harm to someone else that you didn't mean to do. Let's feel guilty about it, fix it, and move on. So that's where it's actually very useful. And I think our resistance to feeling bad things sometimes makes it harder for us to kind of do what we want to do, which is many of us want to make things better from a DEI perspective.
0: Yeah, and it's, it's such a necessary step in a way It's almost like any behavior change, it always is uncomfortable at the Mm. beginning, and yet there's not—I certainly don't know of a good way around it. I think about when we're working on behavior change with our academy members— I I have often said to folks, I if you feel uncomfortable, like that's not the intention, but that's actually a pretty good indicator that you're moving, like you're doing something different, right?
1: It it means you're doing it right.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Or at least you're (laughs) doing something different, right? I mean, maybe you're doing it worse, but 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 you're gonna elicit (laughs) some sort of different outcome. And that actually leads me to one of the lines I highlighted, and I starred more so than any other in the book, is Mm -hmm. you write, dressing for the weather means we are unsurprised when these emotions raiden down on us. Shame and guilt can work to our advantage. And I think about that, like the goal here is not to avoid them, but it's to use them. So part of it is like the guilt, like what can we feel that feeling of guilt that we have all felt and we will all feel again when we get confronted with something so the the key is like how can i get to a better place quickly because one of the other things that really came up for me and you you alluded to this a minute ago is our our tendency especially when it comes to identity race especially our tendency is to respond in one of three ways normally it's to deny right or it's to distance ourselves or the the more healthy response is what can we do to dismantle to make change and right. i'm trying to get my head around like in that moment when we feel that kind of guilt, what helps us to get a little bit directed more toward that path of dismantling something?
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, I really like the research on the the jargony term is values affirmation. I think of it as, you know, if I were to Put it in everyday terms, I think of it as like a, a, a booster shot to the ident our identities. When we're we're in that denial, we're kind of protecting our identities. We're trying to fight off the threat to the identity that we value. And maybe what we can do is rather than having to fight it off by denying it, we can have this booster shot, which allows us to sort of to to hold our identities intact while we deal with these threats. And what that looks like is we think about the things that we value. So for example, in the United States, I I might think, well, freedom is something that I I value in this country. And so while we we're having battles back and forth over what we should be teaching in schools and who we should elect. And we're having all sorts of polarizing debates, if sometimes not even debate, it might be too generous way to describe them. What if we were to simply remind ourselves internally of what we value most when we think about this country and its past? In my case, I'm going to say, I think I said freedom. Let's go with freedom and remind myself of examples when the country has upheld those values What the research says is when people do these kind of reflective activities, even on a sort of occasional basis, every few months, 15 minutes here or there, maybe writing about it, thinking about it, we inoculate ourselves against the threats that are going to come our way. We give ourselves a way to resist feeling like, oh my gosh, this, it's all bad. Everything's bad. I can't, I can't even deal with this. So I'm going to deny it. So in summary, values affirmation research is what I think of as a booster shot. It's reflecting on and affirming some values that we feel strongly about in our own cultural history, national history, family history, and then allowing that to give us the resilience we need when we're hit with something that doesn't feel as good.
0: Perhaps this is colored by the pandemic, but I'm thinking about the language used on booster shot and inoculation. There's an element here of like, I am proactively introducing something to my thinking that I I intentionally reflect on and I think about the bigger picture, the nobler motive and values. And mm-hmm. I do that at some regular interval. And by yeah. doing that, the reality of having the things come to challenge me that will come to challenge me is I'm more likely than to respond in a better and healthier way than I would if I had never taken the time to do that.
1: That's exactly it. Yeah, that's the idea.
0: Yeah. I'm trying to get a sense of, I mean, there's some really interesting research around this. You, you uh, cite it in, in your book on organizations and teams that have done this and tried this. Like, in practice, what does it look like to surface some of those? And what do those exercises look like to get you into that place where you are more likely to respond effectively?
1: yeah absolutely. Well, like, for example, there's a study that's been done that looked at pro-social behavior. pro-social behavior is sort of the opposite of antisocial behavior. It's like helping out a colleague or or donating money to a charity. and they had the participants in this study do a values affirmation task where they focused on values they cared about, like forgiveness or honesty or kindness, and they they wrote about why those values mattered to them. and then later they found that their pro-social behavior increased because they had those, that sort of the booster shot working in favor of them. There's been other studies that have been done more on a, a societal level. There's one study that took place in Canada and in in Canada, and this is not limited to Canada. It's also happened in the United States and perhaps elsewhere in the world. There were what they called residential schools. And I'm going to put schools in, in sort of air quotes because What they really were, were institutions where children of indigenous families were removed from their homes, removed from their parents, and through threats or force or sort of the promise of an education that wasn't delivered. And in reality, what happened in these institutions is there was a lot of abuse. The children were forbidden from seeing their parents, from speaking their native language. Many of them died of abuse and neglect with their the remains of their body not even being returned to their family. So brutal past. So what they did in these studies was they recruited Canadians and asked them to, they they exposed them to the kind of truth I just exposed you to. Over 50,000 deaths, 91,000 reports of physical, emotional, and sexual abuse of these children. And what they were interested in is whether people were willing to engage with this contact or, or would they get very defensive, like the denial you were talking about earlier. The way they tested this is they had half of the, the experiment subjects in the experiment, before they read that paragraph with the Brutal History, they had them do a values affirmation task. They selected a value they cared about, they wrote about it. And then the other half, Didn't do that. They didn't pick a value they cared about. In fact, they picked a value they didn't care about, and they wrote about a value they didn't care about. And what they found was the 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 participants who had had the opportunity to reflect on a value they cared about that was important to them as Canadians were less defensive. They had they did experience some collective guilt and collective shame, which again doesn't feel good, but it was the path towards them taking action or taking responsibility. So. I think what these studies sort of help us see is the possibility that we can dress for the weather. We can be ready for the storm and we can ride it out. We don't have to turn around and go home. We can stick with the whatever itinerary we had for the day, have the experiences we're there to have. We may get a little wet along the way, but we'll come out sort of grateful for the fact that we're closer to the goal we set at the beginning.
0: What's so fascinating to me about the research you just shared and so much of the message in the book, and by the way, thank you for sharing that example, is that I think a lot of times when we have conversations about values, that we think about it as, I'm doing this for me, or I'm doing it, if it's for an organization, I'm doing this for my team or my organization. And what's really so fascinating is that by doing that for ourselves, reflecting on values that are important to us that we actually do better responding to others when we get challenged with something we should be challenged with. And we're more mm-hmm. likely then to come to a place of how do I dismantle? How do I affect change that's in a good way versus going down the path of denial and, and distancing ourselves? And it sort of seems like on its face, like it, 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 it's, it's, it's amazing that that works and how cool it is that we can do something proactively to respond better absolutely
1: absolutely and i think if you if you pair this idea of kind of protecting these social identities we care about with the idea of protecting our individual identities and that's what i referred to earlier as being goodish it's supposed to be a good person where we see ourselves as either we are or we aren't it's very brittle so naturally the data says and anecdotally we can sort of relate to the fact that if you if you want to if i If I'm given a choice between being labeled as a good person or bad person, most people will say, I'm a good person. I deserve the things I have. I'm a decent human being. And that doesn't create that space to have the kind of reaction you just described, where we can sort of soak in what someone's trying to share with us. And this alternative approach of being a goodish person, where we let go of being a good person so we can be a better person, is one in which we have this like stretch, we have this this room to grow because we are trying to be better now than we were before. And so the whole premise is in most parts of our lives, we're trying to be better at our jobs now than we were last year. We're trying to be a better parent now than we were last year. We're trying to do a lot of things better over time. Why shouldn't that also apply to how we see ourselves as good people? What if we also had the same standard that I want to be a better person now than last year. Not that I am a good person full stop, nowhere to grow.
0: Mm, wow. I'm wondering if maybe we both might illustrate an example of how we've used this. And I didn't even think about this until you mentioned something you said about parenting a few moments ago and values. Somewhere along the way, I had read an article or saw some saw it in a book that when handling a difficult situation as a parent with kids, and kind of redirecting behavior, that it was really helpful to come back to a values-based statement. And Mm. we have two kids, and like they're best friends, and they love each other. And like any siblings, they fight once (laughs) in a while, right? And so I have found, I tried it out a few times with them. And the way we start a conversation, anytime someone has done something they're not supposed to do or invaded someone's space or hit or whatever, is we'll start the conversation with, say, we all want to live in a safe place, all of us, mm. and it is fascinating to me how that resets the dynamic of the conversation, like because everyone nods, everyone's in agreement with that, yeah, and then we can and it's it's like night and day from the conversations we used to have before I did it with a values based framework, and it's just interesting how that like when you aim to the the nobler, the bigger motive, how it just reframes. Even in the moment, the conversation, but also thinking it in advance, like, oh, of course, we we live in a house where we all want to be safe. Like that's just a general principle. It resets the dynamic whenever the challenges do ine- inevitably come up.
1: I think you just changed my life, Dave. Honest to God, that's amazing. I'm going to try that tonight.
0: Yeah, well, I'll try it. And I'm I'm curious, like, when you think about this from a values-based standpoint, have have you found that there's something that works for you as far as like doing some of that inoculation in advance?
1: i I mean, I'll I'll stick with the parenting side. The version of I have not tried the way you just described it. I really like that. The way I've used it has been more, so we've told our kids since they were little that our job as parents, we have three jobs as as parents. Our job is to teach you, love you, and protect you. And that's what we've always said. Mm. And so when they're angry at us, that is something we've come back to. If the battle, whatever we're arguing about in the moment of their phone or their going out or their homework or whatever, their room, the back and forth. And I can feel myself getting, let's just say my best self is not coming out in that (laughs) moment. And I'm certainly not being convincing to anybody in those moments when I have the presence of mind to do it. And I can state, listen, let's just back up. Here's my job. These are, this is what I'm trying to do. Like if I'm, if anything I'm saying is not consistent with teaching you, protecting you or loving you, then I'm willing to sort of withdraw it. But i see the the values here as being the the driver and so what i do think i have found is that in those moments of tension with my children when i I either want to double down, like just scream louder than them, basically, and claim that I'm I'm the boss and I'm the parent of you, or shut down and just be like, you know what? You're old enough. Mm. I told you what to do. And if you don't want to do it, you know, yeah. but but do it in a very like, not in a empowering way, in a very minimizing way. When I'm tempted to either shut down or double down, sort of reminding myself and them of what my three jobs are, the, the three jobs that we've adopted in our home, those values kind of... I feel myself being more calm and more resilient. So I, yeah. instead of doubling down or shutting down, I can just sort of stay. I try to understand where they're coming from, what their resistance is. Maybe this has nothing to do with this. It's about some other emotion they're feeling, but I can see that and notice that more effectively when I'm in that calmer state.
0: Huh? Wow. Uh, thanks. I mean, it's so similar to my example too. And like it kind of you're, in a tough situation, you're pointing back to the larger principle and, and I, I think that leads me to just wondering, for the person listening who's thinking, okay, doing a values affirmation, I could see how that would be really helpful, but where do I start? For the the person who's maybe a parenting, maybe wants to be a better friend, mm-hmm. or who's leading a team, who is going to be challenged for sure and should be, right? What have you found that's helpful as just a starting point as an exercise in doing this that's, that's a good first step for someone who hasn't done it before?
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, if we center ourselves, let's say, on work around diversity, equity and inclusion, I would start with what are the values that are most important to us in this? And really, and that may vary by person and that's okay. It It doesn't we don't all have to be motivated by the same values, but to individually think about what is it that's driving me here and it can be something you talk about with others it can be something you write about just i'm just building off of previous empirical research in in related domains this specific exercise or study hasn't been tested to my knowledge but i could absolutely imagine that that taking something like what what are the values that are most important to us in this DEI effort might get us out of this back and forth of are we woke washing or are we you know there's there's backlash and there's there's sort of digging in of heels and maybe what we need is that calm, you know, just as I was describing with a parent, where we just remind ourselves of why are we doing this? What is it that's important to us? Maybe the value we care most about is excellence. Like we care about excellence. Well, that that's really important. If you're going to have excellence, you're going to need everyone in the organization to be like willing to walk through fire, willing to feel valued, to feel seen, to want to wanna be there. That's very central to a DEI effort
0: yeah indeed and stopping and just acknowledging that writing that down whatever works for each person some way of just surfacing that and reflecting on it that that really helps it really makes a big difference huh? I think it I think it would yeah one of the other things that I thought was really interesting that you write about is that research shows that human beings do a poor job of predicting how they'll feel about a particular situation in the future and it causes us to overcorrect does Does doing this, like really surfacing the value, doing that affirmation on it, does that help us to prevent overcorrecting a bit? And, And if not, what does? Is there a way we can kind of push back on that tendency we all tend to have?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Psychologist Dan Gilbert refers to this as affective forecasting. So affective means emotion related to affect or emotion. And forecasting, he says, we're just, we're terrible affective forecasters, and in his research, he and his colleagues find that we we overestimate both how happy good things will make us feel, like winning the lottery. We overestimate how happy that will make us feel. And we overestimate how sad bad things, like a terrible accident, is going to make us feel. So in both directions, we're wrong. We, mm-hmm. we overestimate the intensity. We also overestimate how long we're going to feel bad. And I think a lot of us have seen this happen, that you're sort of dreading something and then the thing happens and you're like, you feel crummy for whatever period of time and then it kind of gets normalized in your life and you move on. And his sort of, uh, I, I think I'm quoting him he, or maybe I'm quoting myself, I can't remember, but but uh, he, he finds that we, we basically don't do a good job distinguishing between like a root beer and a root canal. We think the root beer is going to feel better and for longer than it does we feel the root canal is going to feel worse and for longer than it does and we kind huh. of just over dramatize in both directions this is useful because a lot of the stuff that we're when we're trying to protect our identity you know when like i i teach mba students so i'm i'm in front of people 30 years younger than me on a regular basis and you know what they're more current on a lot of things than i am and the they'll they'll correct me in class or they'll call me out for you know I've assigned a reading that they perceive as sexist or racist and in my head this sounds like the worst thing possible that this could happen like i will wake up in the middle of the night in a, a sweat thinking about something like this yeah when it actually happens especially if i'm in the right mindset if i can be goodish in that moment instead of trying to protect my good person identity if i can stop talking and actually hear what they're trying to tell me it's actually not as big a disaster as I think it's going to be. So again, my affective forecasting has like made this out to be the worst thing ever. It is bad that I've potentially done some harm inadvertently, but you know what? I, I figure out what it is, I fix it, and then we move on. And so this idea of us being poor affective forecasters can really get in our way. You asked what we can do to to be better forecasters. And unfortunately it's a little bit like the weather, like we've gotten better at forecasting the weather, but, but science still hasn't quite figured out how to do that. Well, the best method that psychologists have found is not for me to try to guess how I'm going to feel, but to ask other people how they think I will feel. Huh? You see? So like if I were to ask you, Dave, how do you think I will feel if I get confronted in the classroom because I've inadvertently said something terrible? You'll probably be better. And in fact, they even find that if they ask like a randomly selected stranger, that person might be a better predictor of my feelings than I would of my own.
0: It's interesting how helpful it is to get outside perspective on so many things when it comes to leading well and interacting with others. Thank you so much for the work you've done, Dolly. I mean, I really... I so enjoyed reading the book because there's so much and in this book. And we had Wendy Smith on the show not long ago yes. talking about both and and how important that is here. And I love the invitation to be goodish, <laughs> right? Yeah. Rather than doing the binary, I'm a good person, I'm a bad person, is goodish. I intend well. I'm doing good lots of the time. And also, I am going to. Make mistakes and I'm going to be challenged. And by doing some of this work to affirm our values and to be thinking that in advance and identify that, how much that can help in so many ways. Speaking of things that can help, I would invite folks to check out the book, of course, and you have a newsletter. So, if speaking of inoculation, one thing <laughs> that folks might do is be regularly hearing from you. What's the newsletter like and where would folks go to find it?
1: Oh, thanks for asking. It's called Dear Good People. It's like a bite-sized, kind of zeitgeisty approach to thinking about inclusion. So it's like a five to 10 minute read once a month. And if you're interested in subscribing, you can go to my website, which is dollychug, D-O-L-L-Y-C-H-U-G-H.com. There's also all the past issues. You don't even have to sign up. You can just see them. I've I've got a few up there that you might enjoy.
0: Well, thank you for that invitation. We will link all of that up in this week's weekly leadership guide and, of course, the episode notes. You can find it there. Dolly Chug is the author of A More Just Future Psychological Tools for Reckoning with Our Past and Driving Social Change. Dolly, thank you so much for your work.
1: Oh, thank you, Dave. Thank you for your work. Mm-hmm.
0: If this conversation was helpful to you, several related resources from Dolly in the episode notes, and then, of course, some other conversations you may also want to check out. One of them is episode 552, The Way Managers Can Be Champions for Justice. Minda Hartz was my guest on that episode. She invited us to take the manager's pledge and to utilize that to really work towards justice inside of our organizations. A great compliment to this conversation, a wonderful invitation from Minda, episode 552 for that. Also recommended episode 556 with Whitney Johnson, how to help people engage in growth. We talked about her model of smart growth, and one of the invitations she made in that episode is to use I am statements that have a noun rather than a verb. Instead of saying I run, you might consider saying I am a runner and thinking about your own growth and getting better. A lot of places that would be helpful in this topic today as well. And then finally, of course, I'm going to recommend Episode 612, How to Solve the Toughest Problems. Wendy Smith was my guest on that episode. We talked about moving from either-or thinking moving towards both and thinking. That's such a great compliment to this conversation. All of those episodes you can find, of course, on the coachingforleaders.com website. And if you haven't already, I'm inviting you to set up your membership, your free membership at coachingforleaders.com. That's going to give you access to all of the benefits of free membership, including all of the free audio courses, all of my episode notes, the book library, notes and highlights from interviews, and one of the other resources that's in there is something called Dave's Library. When you set up your membership, your free membership at coachingforleaders.com, you're going to get access to that. It is a great place to find links, resources, just about anything I found. In fact, one of our members reached out to me this last week and said, I'm really looking for some resources on employee engagement. And I said, stop, don't spend any more time trying to find them because they're already there in the library. I, uh, as I go through and read every week, I am always adding to the library in detail, tagging, organizing links from articles, videos, other podcasts. I'd invite you to go in there. If you're looking for something, when you pull up that page, there's a huge page of hashtags. If you just click on the hashtag you're looking for, and that topic, you'll find a ton there, plus lots more. All of that inside the free membership. If you haven't already, set that up at coachingforleaders.com. You'll have full access along with the rest of us. Next week, I'm glad to welcome the CEO of Dale Carnegie, Joe Hart on how to discover what other people value. Join me for that conversation with Joe and have a great week.